Our scripture reading this morning comes from the uh, book of Acts, chapter 22, verses 1 through 22. Your bulletin says 21, but we're going through 22. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted the way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me, and I came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Let's pray. Father, you know the the sins and insecurities and, and messiness of, of my own heart, even as I share these words of Scripture. So, Father, we pray that, that you would even uh, enter into my heart, the hearts of all of us here, Lord, to help us to see you and your greatness this morning. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. 
Uh, if you've been with us over the uh, uh, past couple months, you'll know that uh, we've come to an exciting chapter. We feel like we always are coming to exciting chapters in our church, but one in particular that we've come to lately is uh, a partnership with the, the Life Counseling Center to open up a, a counseling center uh, here in the neighborhood of Roland Park. And uh, though we're just getting started, I've already become so thankful for our relationship uh, with the Life Counseling Center. It's been really great to see them begin to care for folks within our church community and also to begin to uh, care for those uh, that are in our greater community as well. But as I've watched them, even from a distance, uh, my respect for them has continued to grow more and more. And for anybody who uh, helps people with problems, helps people with issues, because we all know that people are incredibly complex. We look into our own hearts and we know that our own hearts are complex and that other people are complex as well. We're we're all like onions, right? We have uh, various layers that all contribute to make us who we are. And we often have uh, presenting issues in life, but those issues are always uh, part of a bigger narrative. They're part of hundreds and hundreds of experiences that, that we go through year after year that make us who we are. And what it reminds us is that we are people that are not just one story, but we are many stories that weave together to make us who we are as people. And in some ways, that is what uh, our passage is like in many ways. It's a powerful story about an event that happened in an ancient city several thousand years ago. But it's a really complex story. And what we're going to look at this morning is that it's actually four different stories that are weaving all together to create a very powerful experience that we read about in the book of Acts. And the first story that we see is really the greater story of the spread of Christianity that we read about in this book of Acts. This book records for us really the first step of Jesus' followers after Jesus had uh, lived, died, and then ascended back into heaven. And it records for us the, f- the first steps that Jesus' followers took after his life and ministry. It records for us the spread of this message of the gospel that they were entrusted with. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 1, uh, chapter 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And that word power that Paul uses here in the Greek is the word uh, dynamos or something along those lines. And it's the very same root word that we use to get our word dynamite from. And what Paul is getting at is this, is that when the gospel message is unleashed, it is charged with the very power of God himself. And when it is unleashed, when this message is communicated, it explodes into lives and into communities and into cities, transforming people and changing their lives, affecting change wherever it goes. And what the book of Acts tells us is it tells us about how this message of the gospel, this dynamite, really changed the first century world. 
We read stories about thousands of people coming to Jesus Christ after one apostle preaching one message. We hear stories about this gospel spreading from city to city all the way until the ends of the earth. Sociologists, even even secular ones, have looked at this Jesus movement and have deducted or deduced that this movement is really the most powerful cultural movement in all of human history. And we even see the evidence of that movement today. If you look around in our culture, you'll see that it doesn't seem like Christianity is, is spreading a whole lot here in the, in the U.S. in our current culture. But if you look at other places like China and Africa and other cultural contexts, you see the message of Christ. You see the, the message of this gospel changing people's lives in remarkable ways. Rodney Stark is, is one of those sociologists that has uh, studied the, the, the Christian movement. Uh, throughout its history and he did the math one day about how powerful this movement was and is he said that when Jesus ascended back into heaven that we read about at the very end of the gospels the beginning of acts he said that at most the amount of Jesus's followers were around 30 40 maybe even 50 people but he recognizes that just days later, and we read about this in Acts, just days later, 3,000 people are converted to Christianity. And he studied the movement all throughout the first few hundred years, and what he came to was at the end of 350 BC, the number of Christians was right around 34 million people in just a span of three hundred years this movement of christianity even without the internet and with all the great things that we have spread in remarkable ways in the ancient world and there were both really practical reasons why this happened but also very spiritual reasons as well both practical and spiritual one of the practical reasons for this spread of this movement was be was that it was largely an urban movement and if you read through the book of Acts, you'll discover that the followers of Jesus Christ were passionate about taking this message of the gospel to cities. They recognized that cities were the centers of ancient culture. So what they did is they traveled from city to city sharing this message of the gospel. And the second half of, of the book of Acts really records this about how the gospel took over in different cities. It tells about the gospel in Jerusalem and Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. It talks about the gospel's work in Athens and Ephesus and in Philippi. And even it takes us to the very end of the book of Acts where the gospel goes to the most influential city of the ancient world. Takes it to the city of Rome. And what I'd like to do over the next couple weeks in these last waning uh, weeks of August, the last waning weeks of the summer is to look at the spread of the gospel in these ancient cities. To look at one city at a time and see how though the message of the gospel was essentially the same, it spoke in very different ways in all of these different ancient cities. And our passage this morning takes place in one of those ancient cities and that is the city of Jerusalem. And in it we 
see the story of this city of Jerusalem. You see, just like people, all cities have their own particular stories as well. Think about yourself for a minute. Personally, each one of us have distinctives that make us who we are. We have personalities that have been shaped by our experiences. We have uh, certain people who are heroes to us and other people who are villains to us. We have dreams and ambitions and all those things combine together to make us who we are. They combine together to create our identity. But what is true of us individually can also be true of people corporately. And that is, in some ways, every city has its own distinctiveness. Every city seems to have its own personality that comes from its own history. Every city has its own heroes and villains. It has its own dreams and ambitions that help create its identity. Every city has its own cultural and cultural niche and identity that makes perfect sense to those people who live in the city, but seems strange and backwards to those people that don't exactly live in the city. And what's beautiful is that the gospel has the ability to speak into all the different stories and different narratives in our culture. This morning's passage takes place uh, in the city of Jerusalem, which was a very, very unique city in the ancient world. It was a city where religion and ethnicity mixed all together to create a very fierce tribalism in its own people. The city was uh, full of the Jewish nation, of Jewish people. They were God's chosen people that we read about really all throughout uh, the Old Testament. And the Jewish people, especially at this point, had a fierce religious pride to them. Their heroes were individuals that we read about in the Old Testament. Their heroes were Abraham and Moses. Their enemies were the Romans who were oppressing them at this point. But really their enemies were anybody who wasn't Jewish, anybody who wasn't just like them. They believed in the the law of Moses and they fiercely held on to that law and their identity was shaped by great events like the exodus and the exile and all this combined together to create a fierce tribalism in the Jewish people. You see, they believed that, that they had a unique relationship with God. And if you read the Old Testament, you see that they did have a unique relationship with God. But where it became unhealthy was how they made this unique relationship with God to become a ground for an ethnic superiority. You see, they believed that they were superior to all other races and that only their race could become a part of God's ultimate plan in history. But the sad irony is that this fierce religion and nationalism ultimately got in the way of accepting God himself. The Gospels tell us that Jesus, God's own son, just 30 years before our narrative takes place, just 30 years before, had ministered in this very city of Jerusalem. But instead of accepting him, 
The people rejected him. They called for him to be crucified. They dragged him out of the city and hung him on a cross between two thieves among common criminals. They believed that this movement would go away. This Jesus movement would go away if only they could take away their leader. But now our narrative takes place 30 years later. And they are once again being confronted with the person of Jesus Christ. But now they are being confronted by Jesus through the Apostle Paul. And the other story you see that weaves into this passage really is the story of this person, Paul. You see, if Jerusalem had a a favorite son in the ancient world, if Jerusalem had a favorite son, then that favorite son would have been a man named Saul. He was born and raised in the city of Jerusalem. He attended all the the finest Jewish schools of the day. He studied under all of the the finest Jewish teachers of the day. And he himself himself became one of their, part of their ruling council. He himself became a Pharisee. He embraced all of the Jewish ethnic and religious superiority. And because of that, he hated Christians. He hunted them down. That was his job. He not only uh, approved of their killings, but he would often drag men and women and children from their homes to have them arrested and in some cases executed for following Jesus Christ. And he did all these things with a particular passion. He did all of them vehemently. And that is until one day he met Jesus Christ himself. He tells us in our passage that he was traveling down the, the, the Damascus road when he was confronted by Jesus Christ himself. And because of that, his life was transformed. Instead of being Christ's most passionate persecutor, he was now Christ's most passionate follower one of the most passionate leaders of the ancient church. It changed him so much that he changed his actual name from Saul now to be called Paul. And after his conversion for years, he made it his mission to travel around the world sharing this message of the gospel to everyone he rubs shoulders with. He went on three missionary journeys all throughout the ancient world just so he could share this passionate message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, particularly to Gentiles, particularly those who were not Jewish. His story is an important one. Think for a minute about that person in your life that seems to be most oppositional to coming to Jesus Christ. That person who wants to reject God, who doesn't want to talk about it, doesn't want to go there no matter how much you continue to bring it up. That person who you just look at and say, there is absolutely no hope that that person's life could actually be changed by the gospel. But that is what you get with the Apostle Paul. It is a reminder to us that no life is too far gone to be transformed by God. After all, all of our hearts really are in the hand of God and he can shape them as he will. What's unique about our story this morning is despite all this history with Paul, he had gotten to the point after all these travelings, after traveling all over the ancient world, he got to a point where he now realized it was time for him to go home. 
It was time for him to return back to Jerusalem, that city that he was born and raised in, to face all of his old family members and all of his own friends. It was time for him to go back to all those friends that he'd enjoyed persecuting Christians alongside of. It was time for him to face his old teachers. It must have been an incredibly emotional thing for him to return back to Jerusalem. And in some ways, culturally, it would have been for him like sticking his hand into a hornet's nest. It wasn't just a place for him to go, but it was a place that would be particularly dangerous for him because of his life and because of his story. And the passage tells us that as soon as he arrives, he is almost immediately mobbed by all of these people. The city hears about his arrival and it, all this energy starts churning up. It becomes a buzz because Paul has arrived. And as soon as he enters into the temple, it actually creates a riot throughout the entire city. He enters into the temple and he's immediately grabbed by all of his old friends. And this crowd begins to chant for his death. They grab him. They start beating him almost to the point where he, uh, he comes to the point where he's beaten almost short of his very own life. And the only thing that saves him in this moment is the Roman garrison that steps in and saves him from being killed in that very own moment. Now, you would think that after he's saved by the Romans, he would immediately be ready to, to get out of Dodge, to leave. But no, not Paul. He sees this as an occasion to share the gospel message with this crowd that's trying to kill him. So our narrative tells us that he stands up on the steps of the temple. Most likely he is bloodied and beaten, uh, probably very severely at this point. But instead he stands up on the steps of the temple and he begins sharing his story and sharing the story of the good news of Jesus Christ. But does, he doesn't just share the gospel. He shares how this gospel speaks to the particular distinctiveness of the city of Jerusalem itself. He shares that, that just like them, just like the people of Jerusalem, his religion had actually gotten in the way. It had prevented him from seeing Jesus Christ himself. His own perceived religiousness, his own perceived religious pride did not bring him closer to God. It's instead, it had distracted him from embracing God with his life. He told them that God's plan of salvation was much bigger than their particular ethnic group. Instead, God's plan of salvation existed for the whole world. He spoke the story of the gospel into the particular narrative and story of the city of Jerusalem. But our passage tells us in verse 22 that they didn't want to hear it. They couldn't bear with this message So before he could even finish sharing his message, they mobbed him once again and cried for him to be killed just the same as they had for Jesus 30 years before. See, we see lots of stories weaving into this passage, but ultimately we see the story of the gospel. 
Because the story of the gospel in Jerusalem reminds us of some things that are particularly true of even us and in our own lives. It reminds us that for some of us, the greatest obstacle to coming to Christ is not so much the bad deeds we've done in our lives, but for some, the greatest obstacle for coming to Christ is our own religiosity. It is our own perceived sense of our own goodness that can be the thing that keeps us from Jesus. Our ethnic pride or our religious pride can be the thing that distracts us from our true spiritual condition. And that is that we stand before God in spiritual bankruptcy. Our story reminds us that the gospel way involves owning up to the reality of our souls. It means looking deep inside of us past all our religious facades and all our good deeds to see the reality, to see the true state of our very own soul. Our passage reminds us that the way of the gospel means not celebrating our own goodness before God, but instead despairing of our own goodness. And in that moment, embracing the grace of Jesus Christ. After all, Jesus says in Mark two seventeen, he says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. The gospel speaks to the complexity of cities. It speaks to corporate narratives and uncovers all the obstacles of coming to Christ. But the gospel also speaks to the complexity of all of our lives. One writer wrote this. He said, real life in God's world is complicated. And the gospel must not only address the real life from a distance, but it must get down on its hands and knees alongside it right there with the love of God. You see, the gospel speaks to the most intimate and difficult places of our lives and seeks to bring transformation in those places. But that's not all the gospel does. The gospel also, and we see this in Paul's life, it propels us into mission because the spread of the gospel wasn't just a call on Paul's life or those first century believers but it's also the call that God puts on your life and my life as well to be passionate followers of Jesus Christ and passionate communicators of his gospel to all those people we rub shoulders with. My wife uh, shared with me a couple weeks ago um, a blog post uh, that was written by uh, a young woman. You may have seen this. I think it became pretty popular on the internet for like 30 seconds. Uh, it was writ a blog post written by uh, a woman uh, named Jennifer Dukes Lee. And in the blog post, uh, she tells a story about a particular photographer and uh, a photograph he took that became uh, very popular. The photographer was a Pulitzer Prize winner uh, for a photograph that he had taken in 1993. And the photograph was of a young African child uh, who was emaciated and lying on the ground in the Sudan, I believe. 
And the child was about to die. It was on the, the brink of starvation because it had grown up and lived in poverty uh, all of its life. And the child in this photograph was on its way to a feeding station in the Sudan uh, when really it had passed out. It couldn't go any farther. It couldn't make it on its own power to get to this feeding station. And what made the photograph so powerful was uh, standing right behind this child who had collapsed and was emaciated there on the ground was a very large vulture that was just sitting there and waiting uh, for this very little baby girl to die so that it could feast on the flesh of this baby girl. Once the uh, photograph hit the New York Times, the, uh, the photographer himself came under great criticism because everybody was saying, instead of trying to get the perfect shot or waiting for uh, all the, 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 the lighting to be perfect to get the great shot, why didn't this photo- photographer step in and actually help this child? Because as they looked at the story, the photographer said that it took him about 20 minutes to get all the lighting right and to follow the vulture and to do all this before he got the perfect shot. And he even said at the end that at the end he he shooed away the vultures, but he didn't end up helping this little girl get to the feeding station. So that just a year later when he won the Pulitzer Prize for this photograph, he went and found a place under the tree, uh, under a tree and cried over all the guilt and shame that he felt for not helping this child. And the blog post goes on to say he ended up taking his very own life over all the guilt and shame of what he had done. Friends, when Paul arrived in Jerusalem, he looked around and he saw people everywhere that were spiritually emaciated. He saw people that were on the verge of spiritual death. The the vultures were surrounding them. He saw people who thought they were healthy, people who believed they were okay, but Paul knew the true state of their souls. And that's why that even if it meant his death, he had to share the bread of the gospel with them. Friends, you may be sitting here and you may believe that you've got all of your spiritual bases covered. You may believe that you've got everything figured out and that you don't need anything else in your life. But you may have become distracted by the true condition of your souls. And if so, recognize the bankruptcy of spirit that you and I all bear and taste the bread of heaven that is offered to us in Jesus Christ. But know that when you do taste that bread, know that when you do experience life in Jesus Christ, that God just doesn't intend for you to taste that bread, but he propels you into mission because the bread isn't just for you, It's for all those who hunger and thirst. Let's pray.